0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 100 of the book cougars 2 middle aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. I don't know. You don't say happy anniversary. You don't say happy birthday. It's just yay. Yay. Happy 100th episode. You know, we recognize this is kind of an awkward time to be celebratory. But we do want to acknowledge the accomplishment. And we're really proud of this podcast and happy that we have listeners out there that enjoy all things bookish.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all for listening to us. And I know some of you have been with us since the beginning and others are new and we welcome all you new people. And thank you. What more can we say? It's been so much fun.
0: It is and it just keeps getting more fun. And we have a lot of thank yous to start with really quickly here. We want to just thank our Patreon sponsors. Some of you have also been with us since the beginning, and we really appreciate it. Patreon sponsor Helen just upped her ante last week. We really appreciate it, Helen. Thanks, our Helen. buddy down the street, Emily, dropped off a lovely congratulations on your 100th episode card and gave us a little spending money for a Biblio adventure. Thank Thanks, you, Emily. Emily. And then we got a great email yesterday from listener Sue, who's a subscriber to the newsletter. We sent out our monthly newsletter last night. And she just uh, emailed us back and said, thank you so much for the podcast. And she said, my hair is getting really big. (laughs) and And I just bought two boho bandos from her local independent bookseller which I thought was a good reminder. You know, we don't just have to buy books from our indies to keep them open right now. We can also go online and buy their sidelines.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So thank you, thank you to everyone. And thanks again for listening.
1: Yeah, and to celebrate our 100th episode, we do have a, a really nice giveaway. We're trying to keep it simple. And we wanted to find a way to help support independent bookstores with this giveaway. So Emily, drum roll.
0: Yes, in celebration of our 100th episode, longtime listeners will know that we celebrate every 10th episode with a giveaway. So, we are going to give away four $25 gift certificates to an independent bookstore of your choice.
1: Yep. Yeah, so, there'll be four winners, total of $100, and yeah, bookstore of your choice. And if you're an international listener, we would go with Book Depository for you. So this is open to international listeners as well.
0: Yes. And if you subscribe to our newsletter, you are automatically entered to win. You can do that by going to www.bookcougars.com and there's a subscribe page and you can just put in a little tiny bit of information about yourself and we send out a monthly newsletter.
1: And that is the only way to enter our giveaways, being a newsletter subscriber.
0: Right. We just want to tell you we're going to do something a little bit different this episode. We're going to do two of our regular segments: currently reading and what we just read, and then we have a interview with author Shuli Kaywood to talk about her new book. And we did an interview with Annie Philbrick, who is the owner of Bank Square Books and Savoy Bookshop and Cafe.
1: Annie is on the board of Bank, which is the book industry charitable foundation. And we wanted to talk with her about the great work that they're doing to support booksellers
0: and bookstores. Right. So, Chris, what are you currently reading? <laughs>
1: I'm currently reading a horror novel. It is called Kill Creek by Scott Thomas. And this is a book I picked up the last time we were at the North Trier bookstore up in Manchester, Vermont. I had been seeing, you know, the cover floating around, book bloggers, booktubers talking about this book. It was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award, which is the big horror award that's given annually. It's a haunted house story. And the premise really sparked my interest. It's about uh, this haunted house in Kansas, in the prairies of Kansas, that a man built just before the Civil War. He was a white man involved with an African-American woman, and they were murdered in the house. And then years later, these two sisters move in. And I won't say anything more about the house other than there's this internet mogul who has a a site dedicated to horror, and he likes to do live events to up his ratings and gain viewers. He has four of the most famous horror writers come and spend the night at this haunted house. creepy right and so you would think (laughs) most of the action is all about being in the haunted house um i'm just about the halfway mark and they are out of the house and so much of this story is about what happens afterwards Mm. so so far so good it has had some creepy moments I did keep looking at the doorway to my bedroom as I was trying to fall asleep last night. Um,
0: <laughs> so, so far, so good. <laughs> and it's been really windy around here oh, the past couple yeah. of days. So that that can't help because it adds those, you know, creaks oh. in your house and, and all of that. <laughs> and you
1: know what? The wind was hitting the window just right as I was reading last night going, ooh. Oh, no. You know, through the window pane, I was just like, wow, this this could not be better. All I needed was some thunder and lightning. <laughs>
0: That's great. Well, I just started a new book just this morning called Valentine. Some of you may be hearing about this book because it was just announced as the Today Show book club pick. And I heard about this book because when we got to go see Janine Cummins talk about American Dirt at R.J. Joya, she mentioned this book. This was one of her recommendations. And I right away went home that night and got an ARC from NetGalley. Thank you, NetGalley and HarperCollins. But then never got to it. And now it is out in the world. So it is available. And um, this is Elizabeth Wetmore's debut novel. And it's set in West Texas in the 70s. And the opening of the book is where a brutal crime is committed on a very young girl, a 15 year old girl. And then the book takes the perspective of five different women in this small West Texas town, and what this crime, the effect that this crime has on each of them. Hmm. So it's a heavy subject matter. But I have to say, I got through the chapter where the crime was committed. And there's, it's not, what's the best way to say it, they don't actually, you know, detail the crime itself, you know, that something has happened, but it's kind of really the stories about the aftermath. Mm-hmm. But trigger warning, you know, it is about a rape. So and I'm through the first two uh, chapters with two different female perspectives. And the writing is sublime so far. So again, the title is Valentine by Elizabeth Wetmore.
1: I've been seeing that book floating around a lot on the Internet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the title comes from the fact that it all happens on Valentine's Day which is Mm. interesting. So Mm. right away you understand the title. Are you reading anything else?
1: I am reading the Harriet Beecher Stowe biography by Joan Hedrick. Mm -hmm. And that was one I had, you know, I I started it a while ago. And I I put it down because things just got busy. And it it is kind of, it's not exactly dense, Well, I guess it is kind of a dense biography. It's brilliant. And I did want to get back to it. So what I decided to do was to read one chapter a day. That's it. Even if I want to move on to read more, I'm not letting myself. I'm just reading a chapter a day because I know I'll get through it. Um, Sometimes with biographies, they are, you know, quite often dense when they're in a biography written for adults. And I found that I either kind of obsessively whip through them Like I did not too long ago with the biography of uh, Margaret Fuller to the point where I don't really remember that much about it (laughs) because I, you know, I took it just I went through it so quickly. And then other times don't read it often enough and then it gets put to the side. So with this book, I definitely wanted to read the whole thing. So one chapter a day is working really well because it's helping me retain more information because I do take notes on for kind of like what the biggest what the big point of the chapter is. And it's really helping me see the outline of Harriet Beecher Stowe's life a little bit more and understand her development, which is what the writer is laying out, her development as a writer and a thinker and a woman. So I'm really yeah. enjoying it and highly recommend it.
0: That's really cool. I have heeded your advice, and I too am reading a nonfiction. It's called The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age by David Callahan. And when you told me that you were reading the Harriet Beecher Stowe biography, a chapter a day, I decided, you know, I'm going to implement the same thing with this book. And I'm going to do it in the morning as well, because that's definitely when my mind is more fresh. And I too am taking a lot of notes. And it just, it makes me appreciate each chapter more, I think, and and just be more thoughtful as I read it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this book is about philanthropy, which is something that I work in in my day job. And it's about the tremendous wealth that we have in this country, and how some of these philanthropists, you know, you've heard of their foundations, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Zuckerberg Chan Foundation, they have literally billions of dollars in their funds. And when you own a foundation, there's a requirement by law that you give away a certain percentage, typically, it's 5% of your funds every year. And and that's a way the government has set so that you can't just put money in there and, you know, as a tax diversion and harbor it and never spend it. Hmm. And giving away, when when you've got billions of dollars sitting in the bank, to give away 5% can mean you have to give away, you know, $500 million a year, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of money. So this book really talks about how these foundations and these wealthy folks who are giving money in the philanthropic sector... Are really affecting society as a whole. In and a good way. some of us, well, I was just going to say, <laughs> some of us might think they're doing great things and some of us might not think they're doing great things. It depends a lot on your politics mm-hmm. and what matters to you as a person living in society. And the other thing he really addresses in this book is that, and this is something when I was in grad school studying philanthropy that really troubled me is, you know, a lot of The wealth that was built in this country, and I'm talking about going back to the time of the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, you know, it was built on the back of people working in the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. And the question has always been, you know, that part of the division of wealth came because those workers weren't paid very well. And so, you know, entrepreneurs have the right to earn money and for the risks that they take. But there's also the question of why not share some of the wealth? And that question hasn't changed, Mm -hmm. you know, it still exists in our society today, which is why, you know, we see the tremendous income disparities that we have. And so it's something that I struggle with a lot um, in my work, I will say that with everything going on with the outbreak of the Coronavirus, that the two foundations I work for are doing really wonderful work and really stepping up to help. But part of the point that David Callahan makes in this book is that some of the these wealthy also harbor so much money in and ta- in, you know, are, are have the ability to not pay tax on their wealth, that it kind of creates some of the problems then in society that they're trying to fix mm-hmm. because the money's not going into the government where then it can be spent in society. To help aid some of the people that need the help, mm-hmm. does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it totally does. And I mean, that's it's a similar problem to businesses using tax shelters, you know, with overseas banks or cruise lines that are American businesses supposedly flying under foreign flags, so that I have to pay taxes, right? Is right, right? Yeah, yeah but
0: the di- but but part of the difference here is that then, so if they're for example, if there's not an, as much government money available to go into Medicaid, let's say, this is just an example, that then it's almost like they're creating the problems that then they go in as philanthropists to try to solve. Oh, I see. But yeah. they have more power to make the decisions about how the problem is going to be solved.
1: Well, I was going to ask, I don't know that much about foundations at all. So when you say that they have to give away 5%, Is that, I mean, I thought the whole purpose of foundations was to give away the money that they're collecting. So 5% doesn't seem like very much.
0: Well, it depends on the purpose of the foundation. Some foundations are formed and they want to, they set like a 20 year goal. We're going to spend down all of our money in the next 20 years. Some want to be in existence in perpetuity, Mm -hmm. like the Rockefeller foundations, the Ford foundations, those have been here forever. And so that they can give away more than 5%, but the law states that they have to give away 5%, which oh, is okay. just a threshold in place to say, yes, you do need to spend some of this money every year. Okay. Many of them, when you what you see now with a lot of foundations pouring money into the nonprofit sector to try to help right now, they are having board meetings and being given permission to dig into their corpus and Give away 10% or something like that Which is a difficult decision to make right now When remember all of the Corpus of all of these foundations is Invested right mm-hmm. so at The same time that they're trying to make these Decisions to spend more they've also seen The worth and the value drop Significantly in the past couple of months Yeah so, and then there's so The all, issue
1: of their future what the future Holds right for right. Givers
0: now many of people That he's talking about in this particular book Have joined the giving pledge which is something that billionaires kind of got together and said, we're pledging to give away most of our worth in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. So that's a different answer to your question. They might be doing that via a foundation or they might just be doing it with personal donations.
1: Okay. Very uh, educational.
0: <laughs> he raises a lot of great questions in this book. I'm really enjoying it. But again, when when you recommended that read a chapter at a time, it really helped me just be able to concentrate because I was kind of treating it like I was back in grad school like, okay, you have to read this by the end of the week and write a paper on it. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I don't. I can just read for pleasure. Yeah, and
1: it does. It does it gives you the chance to really sit and think about what you just read and how it fits into the other chapters that came before and yeah, I do enjoy it that way.
0: So what did you just read?
1: Well, I've only read one book since we last talked, and that was The Secrets We Kept by Laura Prescott, which we did as a buddy read. And we did a video that's up on our our YouTube channel, if anybody's interested. This was the book that we picked up at Book Expo in 2019 that Anne Kingman from Books on the Nightstand said, you guys have to get a copy of this book while you're at Book Expo, which we did. And it was one of the editor's buzz panel books too. I had this book, as Emily did, on my shelf for almost a year and it kept looking at me and I kept thinking I'm going to get to it. And now just seemed like the perfect time. And I'm so glad we did a buddy read of it because it was such a page turner. And I feel like it was one of those books... I said in my review on my blog that, you know, I know books are inanimate objects, but some of them just know the right time to jump into my hands.
0: Yes, agreed. And I'm so glad that this one jumped into both of our hands. It was a page turner for me as well. It was the perfect time to read it because I really needed a book to just get lost in and also to have it be set in a different time period, I think was really helpful. Mm -hmm, True. This is this was set back during the time of the Cold War
1: yeah 1950s yeah
0: and it's about a group of women typists in washington dc which is i'm going to get this right this time in the east no in the the west i can't (laughs) i can't do directions it's terrible (laughs) I need a compass. I've, I'm even looking at the book. I have dyslexia of directions. I've always said that if I want to tell someone to turn left, I say right. Yeah. So
1: they're oh they're
0: goodness.
1: they're in the type. Well, they're typists at basically the CIA, a secret government spy organization, and they're. You know, it's all top secret classified information that they're typing up. And as the blurb on the book says, you know, some of them, what does it say? Like they're more than just typists?
0: We all typed, but some of us did more. Mm. We spoke no word of the work we did after we covered our typewriters each day. Unlike some of the men, we could keep our secrets.
1: (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, so so, Emily, go ahead. So there's the women and the the typists. Right. And then there's
0: also... (laughs) It's kind of a book inside of a book because Boris Pasternak, the writer of Dr. Zhivago and his mistress also play a huge part in the book.
1: Yeah. So the the premise of the book is it's the Cold War. Boris Pasternak is one of Russia's most beloved writers. The USSR has been getting rid of writers that don't tow the political line that they want to have represented in fiction and poetry. He has survived a lot of the purges because he was one of Stalin's favorites. But rumor has it that this new novel he's writing has anti-Soviet elements in it. And so, you know, what was the KGB is surveilling Olga, his mistress, And Pasternak. And as most authoritarian regimes do, they don't necessarily attack the person causing the problem. They attack the person's loved ones. So Olga, in a lot of ways, pays the price for his literary output that she was the inspiration for. She was the inspiration for Laura in Dr. Zhivago. Right. So, you, so yeah. anyway, long story sh- you know, have we given away too much of the plot? Because what the, what's going on is the CIA then wants to use this novel that hasn't been published yet as a way to spark discontent with citizens in the USSR. Because
0: it's the Cold right. War, you know. Right. So what happened is, you know, the Soviets were winning the space race and it was very upsetting to American government and Americans in general, I guess. So this is I just wanted to read this one quote. It says, they had their satellites, they're referring to the Russians, but we had their books. Back then, we believed books could be weapons, that literature could change the course of history. Yeah. And in this case, they're referring to the book Dr. Zhivago.
1: Yeah. And, and the book mentions so many other books. So it's really a wonderful tribute to books and the power of literature and individual lives and within the world. And then you have these great female characters who are doing so much of the spy work in different ways. And it's just, it's a love story. There are multiple love stories in the book. It's a book praising books. And I loved it so much.
0: Yes. And it is available now. We highly recommend it. The Secrets We Kept by Laura Prescott. I read one other book I wanted to talk about just because it was so good <laughs> <laughs> that, that I feel like, you know, people are looking for books right now to just kind of have an easy read. This is one I recommend. It's called Separation Anxiety by Laura Zygman. She's someone that had a book I want to say 20 years ago, that was very popular called Animal Husbandry. It was made into a movie, she had great success. And then she had a string of kind of books that didn't go anywhere. I think Hmm. she published two or three books that didn't go anywhere, and then had an over decade long writer's block. And at the same time, she had an illness, both of her parents passed away, she had a child, so she was really in the business of life you know, as well, and started, I want to say a blog or something humorous to just kind of write in short form, but not she just couldn't produce a novel. Mm. And this book is a work of fiction, but it's very semi autobiographical. It's a woman who's in her early 50s, she has a son that's just crossing over to that age where suddenly, you know, he's embarrassed by his parents and doesn't really want to be around them, which as a parent is understandable because you know they have to individuate but is also heartbreaking at the same time (laughs) Mm -hmm. and she and her husband have separated but they are in such financial straits they can't move out and live in a different home Mm -hmm. so they're living in the same home they're separated she one day goes into the closet to start kind of rifling through her stuff to organize it and donate it and she comes across a baby sling you know, one of those slings that you wear in front of you where you put your newborn baby in. Mm-hmm. And she starts carrying around the family dog as a way to just pacify herself and just deal with all of her tremendous grief. Because, as the author, you know, as I said, it's semi autobiographical. The character also is a writer who's experiencing writer's block, has just had an experience where both of her parents died. And she just, her her marriage is in disarray and um, they need money. Mm-hmm. And so she's trying to figure out a way that she can write again. And there's a lot of grief in the book, but there's also a tremendous amount of humor. It's very poignant. And I feel like her writing, she's such a good writer. I'm glad that she got unblocked. Yeah. (laughs) And the book is doing really well. I know she was at RJ's for um, an event. It just came out, I want to say, in the last couple of months. So if you can, you know, get it order it from a local indie or you know get it as an ebook from your library I highly recommend it I read it in two days I just loved it again it's separation anxiety by Laura Zygman that
1: sounds really good At first I thought it was non-fiction
0: <laughs> yeah no I mean it almost it doesn't read like that at all but when you read about her you're like oh yeah this is definitely semi-autobiographical you know Uh huh. Our buddy Emily did work for the event at RJ's and she said that she was really just down to earth and interesting to listen to. And she really acknowledges the struggle of writer's block and how hard it was for her all of these years, you know, to just not be able to access that either the creativity or whatever it was that Mm -hmm. she needed to, you know.
1: Yeah, writer's block is so interesting. I mean, because I know some writers don't believe in it. And I know other writers say it's real and some people say you just don't know what you want to say yet. So it's not necessarily writer's block per se, but it's idea formation time or something. So it's really interesting. I wonder if somebody's if there's a book about writer's block, like the
0: psychology behind it. Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, because she was doing short form writing. So I wonder, too, I mean, I would imagine just some of it is. The energy it takes to be able to stick with a story that's no- novel length mm-hmm. is maybe a different kind of energy than I think the short form writing she was doing was more essay and nonfiction, you know, mm-hmm. so. so but that, that's an interesting question.
1: Because I mean, so many writers, they're, they're still writing anyway that yeah yeah we won't yeah. go down that rabbit hole today because yeah. <laughs> we have two great interviews coming up that we want to let you know a little bit more about is it okay to jump in now emily yeah okay definitely so coming up next we have an interview with annie philbrick who is an indie bookstore owner of two great independent bookstores here in new england we so appreciated her taking the time to come and talk with us um we focused our conversation on the work that bank is doing annie is on the board of bank and that is the book industry charitable foundation which was important to me as a borders employee because when borders was still in existence uh the full name the industry name was borders group inc and so that was bank for short And the company had a foundation that supported booksellers in need. And when the company liquidated, uh, Pam French, who was the director of the foundation, kept it going. And it is now a national level foundation that supports booksellers who work in brick and mortar bookstores across the country. And they are doing now some support, as you'll hear Annie talk about, for bookstores Uh, during this time of uh, COVID-19 crisis.
0: Yeah, and you know, a lot of us who are volunteer-minded or, you know, like to make donations every year have the interest and maybe the wherewithal to be giving money right now, but it's hard to decide where to give it. Or maybe sometimes you're used to giving more of your time, and right now, you know, we're being asked to shelter in place so you can't give of your time. But giving to a place like Bank is really wonderful because they are they have their finger on the pulse of what's happening in the book industry and can really disperse the money that you give. Well, right. you know, they have a system in place to do that.
1: OK, yeah. And, and then- you know, with all of this, too, you know, I know a lot of people are in financial uh, Straits right now. And there's a lot of worry about the future financially for individuals and families. So, you know, if you don't have the financial resources to give right now, sharing these organizations on social media is something that you could do as well, because a lot of people don't know about organizations like bank.
0: Absolutely. That is a yeah. great idea. And, yeah. you know, we're not trying to pressure anyone. Obviously, we just want you to know that the resources out there. Right, exactly. Today, we have a very special guest. We're thrilled that she's taken the time to be with us. Annie Philbrick is the owner of Savoy Bookstore and Cafe in Westerly, Rhode Island, and Bank Square Books in Mystic, Connecticut, two bookstores that we frequently go to when we're not in our houses. (laughs) (laughs) But you still can order from both bookstores, right? Correct.
2: Yep, online or by phone. We're down to a pretty skeleton staff who are sort of working their tails off and a little bit on fumes, but they are there 10 to 2, almost 7 days a week. Sundays are kind of depending on how tired they are, um, but fulfilling the online or and phone orders. And we do delivery, local delivery, curbside pickup, or um, free shipping. That's great. And yeah. we worked with the state to... You know, we're not listed as an essential business, but they allowed us as a non-essential business to be able to provide books to you know people who need, want them, especially mm-hmm. the kids who are out of school.
1: Right, that's excellent. And we should add too that we are an affiliate of your bookstores, and you. we we love that program too, and helping to support the bookstore in that way and our our podcast as well.
3: Thank
0: you.
1: Yeah. One of the things that we're excited to talk with Annie about today is Bink. And uh, BINC is close to my heart because I was a Borders employee for 12 years. And Bink it was a a resource for a lot of people who I knew directly who got support when there were national emergencies, when a, a family member was ill. And it was really fantastic to hear that Pamela French led the effort to keep Bink in the world as a support for all booksellers after Borders liquidated. Annie, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what Bink is doing these days.
2: Sure, so I sit on the board, I have since 2013, I think. I'm now the vice president of the board. And we've been meeting, we have a standing meeting every Tuesday, but we're also meeting probably two or three other times that week as as mostly as the executive board with their new initiatives coming in all the time. But yeah, what their mission is to serve booksellers in need, you know, whether it's a medical emergency, a family emergency, maybe they need a new car to go to work. So they do. They're they're done in grants. They're not done in loans. They also have matching grants. So that sort of helps if someone needs a new car, they can reach out to their own community for support and Bink will match that up to two thousand dollars. Um, The grants, you know, they're somewhere around up to $2,000, $2,500. Sometimes there's exceptions to that if it's a really dire situation and they need help immediately, they will make a decision to go a little bit beyond that. In the last two weeks of March, we raised approximately almost a million dollars from donations to help booksellers in need because, as most people know, around the 16th of March or the 17th of March... As we did, a number of bookstores closed, or at least closed to public coming in the doors and had to lay off or furlough many of their booksellers. We actually, on the 16th of March, furloughed over 30 of our booksellers and are down to about four and a half to maybe five of us sort of at the moment, which is which is pretty pretty tough. So Bing uh, just had some figures here. So um, as to date, they've received 508 applications and that's mostly in the last three weeks. Oh. That is more than the total of the whole time between 2012 and 2019. Uh-huh. They have ha- they've gotten 939 online donations, and in 15 days they helped 171 booksellers who have received $161,000 in assistance. And the requests come in about every 15 minutes. It's um, very simple. It's bank.org, Book Industry Charitable Foundation. There's an online form to submit that just asks basic information. It's all confidential. Um, I don't know who anybody is. You know, there's one person, one or two people in the foundation handling all those requests and trying to turn it around as fast as possible. You know, they send out checks twice a week, and this time, this past week was really critical because people needed to pay their rent. Right. And so the priority that we came up with a few weeks ago in a board meeting was that is housing and food assistance is the priority. They've also gotten some requests from bookstores. So what's and they these were sort of put aside in terms of trying to help the booksellers who are really desperate to stay in their houses, you know, not get evicted because they can't pay their rent or work with their landlord. So last week the author James Patterson stood up and offered $500,000 to be orchestrated with the American Booksellers Association and Bink to help bookstores. So that is a fund that he has offered up. And they've also he's also teamed up with Reese Witherspoon with her production company, Hello Sunshine, to raise money. One goal I heard is $20 million, but I, there's no final goal. It's just that was a number that in order to help bookstores. So between... In mid-April, go to Bink or go to the American Booksellers Association website. In, I think it's in mid-April, there will be applications open for bookstores to apply for assistance. And then, so there's two hashtags that go along with that. One is Save Indie Bookstores, and the Save Indie and the B of bookstores is capitalized. It's all one word, so it's hashtag Save Indie Bookstores. And the other one that Reese came up with on one of her Instagram posts about do, talking about Bink, which was just amazing if you haven't watched it. It's called Save a Bookstore. And the save, the A and the B are also capitalized. And she I we were watching that. I was online in a in a Zoom call and Reese had just posted it on Instagram and the number of likes were just exploding.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: and
2: now she's brought some authors on to talk about it. Elizabeth Gilbert was on. Cheryl Strayed was on, another, uh, another other authors were on, the Reese Book Club to talk about Bink, which is just amazing in terms of raising awareness. Um, yeah. And also I got a notice on Friday from Pam French that the DC Comics donated $250,000 to Bink to for comic book retailers, Great. Um, yeah. which is, yeah. the comic books is interesting. I mean, I don't know a lot about them, but um, Lion Forge is another company of comic books that also donated $100,000 last fall to Bink to help comic book stores. And I actually went to New York to the Javits Center, which is usually where Book Expo is held. And I walk in and I said, what? Because I was going to be there to help represent Bink when they announced this $100,000 initiative. And I didn't realize that I was actually walking into (laughs) Comic-Con, so I I hadn't gotten all the details, but I was there and I finally looked around and I said, what what is this thing? And they said, Okay, Comic Con. I said, You don't have to say anymore. Okay, I got it. I got it. <laughs> it like, you know. But the support is just amazing. And I, you know, they have Bink has helped our booksellers. You know, I didn't know anything about them until 2012 when Bank Square Books was flooded by Tropical Storm Sandy. And you know, the whole store was just torn apart, everything was taken out, you know, we were closed for three weeks while we did all the you know, the landlords helped repair the floors and the walls and Everything else got put in storage, and the phone was ringing. I mean, it was just sitting on a windowsill, and I answered, and it was Pam, French, from Bank saying, how can we help you? And I was like, I don't know what. So anyway, (laughs) she helped some of our employees, and and over the years, she's helped a number of our employees with, you know, family emergencies. You know, someone had an emergency uh, ambulance ride because she ate something and went into anaphylactic shock, and they helped with those costs. You know, another uh, bookseller's father, suddenly passed away in Los Angeles and she had to go out there and do the funeral arrangement and Bank was on top of that immediately. So they're really you know they're not a big organization, there's not a whole they're not they're not a whole team of 50 people, there's like 3 to 6 people depend now there's you know some more part-timers and volunteers because of the amount, the volume, but you know there's just a core group they're based in Ann Arbor like borders and it's just the best board I've ever been on. It's just it's, it's just an amazing amount of compassion You know and help and it's the only thing that we know of that specifically helps booksellers and now they're helping bookstores with the support of you
1: know jim patterson
2: and reese witherspoon that's
1: fantastic i'm happy to hear there's still a profound lack of red tape because i remember as a borders employee it was swift come to the rescue um, when employees needed help so it's great to know that the organization is continuing on in that vein
2: Right. And they're, you know, they're not in their office. They can't go to work in Ann Arbor. So they're all in their different houses moving. And one of the husbands moves the checks from one house to another, you know, or or the request or their, I don't know, however that works, but they're all working together. And I, it's just so impressive. I mean, I just, you know, I think to watch these booksellers get assistance, you know, and now to have bookstores who are, you know, Striving to fill out all the government grants, find money wherever they can find it, to just ensure they can pay their staff they have, which the online orders hugely help, but to mm-hmm. not have people walking in your door, you know especially for us in mystic and westerly, where the spring is coming, and you know we're, we're past the first quarter in New England, and it's coming to our busy time, and you know we just the doors are locked, so but the online orders are are huge. And so,, you know, keep them coming, and it would be great, but we're all trying to look at ways that we are solvent and not so full of debt from loans by the time we come out of this come out of this down the road. Yeah. you know and one thing when I mentioned Sandy, you know someone a reporter once asked me a couple of weeks ago is well, what's the difference between Sandy and this?" And I said, "Well, Sandy, the tide came in, and the tide went out. You know, we knew exactly what we needed to do and how long that was probably going to take. We, the tide's still in in this current crisis. You know, we don't know when it's going to end. We're all working together to try to just hang in there. So we're, you know, we're all here and ready to open our doors and move forward when it, when it is over. And I, I think that will happen. It's just that the uncertainty is just, you know, it makes people, you know, uncomfortable because we just can't, we can't really make a plan. Yeah. But we take, it, we take it a day at a time.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think there's also, you know, people are helping by ordering online, but I think there are also a lot of people who have that ethos of volunteerism and want to mm-hmm. be helping, but, you know, we need to be doing it from our couches right now. Right, because yeah. it's so
2: different, because with right. C, you know, the doors were wide open, it was the end of October, it was still warm, and the community just embraced us and walked to right. the door and was like, what can I do?
0: Right. So we want to make it clear that one of the things you can do, you know, it's great that Bink has these heavy hitters that are supporting them to get the word out, but you can go to Bink's website and donate yourself. And I'm here to tell you $5 helps, Mm -hmm. $50 Mm -hmm. helps, $500 helps, whatever you can give, and it really will make you feel like you're doing something to help. I know that sounds funny, but donating money really does feel good. And this is a place, you know, if you're a listener of the Cougars, it means that you love to read and keeping our independent bookstores alive and healthy is something that's really important right now. And this is a way you can help. So. Yeah, it's
2: a very easy way to donate. As you say, it can be $5. You can make a recurring $1 a month. You know, yeah. every little bit counts. It yeah. doesn't, It you know, we're happy for anything that people are able to give. Yeah, um, right. And it is one of those things, it's it's like I said, the, it, it's one of those boards that I, I really feel good about being a part of.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Not all boards are like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we also wanted to give you a chance to talk about a campaign that you're doing specifically for your bookstores.
2: Right. So this was a hard thing to do, but we were thinking about it the last 10 days or so is to starting a GoFundMe campaign you know it, it's a very easy thing to set up i needed to sort of wrestle with it a little bit um in terms of putting ourselves out there and asking for financial support from our communities but we just decided to do it because you know we we really want to be solvent when we come out of this and i've seen our community help us before so and my other thing these days is I've sort of decided there just aren't really many rules anymore. <laughs> I mean, there are rules for us to stay home and social distance, and I those I completely understand. But you know, we we put it out there last uh, Thursday morning at nine o'clock. We announced the GoFundMe campaign. Our goal is a hundred thousand um, dollars. at the moment we have online approximately twenty five thousand dollars, but in private donations who knew about the campaign or wanted to help us but weren't comfortable online, were probably up to approximately $50,000.
0: And that
2: that is, and thank you for everybody who's donated so far. And, you know, it is so appreciated, we are so grateful. And I think, you know, it will go towards the rent, which we're working with our landlords, you know, payroll, utilities, just to keep us going. You know, in addition to the online orders, I can't say how grateful we are to have this support and know how much we mean to our communities and how much you mean to us.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I love both of your bookstores. I, I spend more time in Bank Square Books, and I just could not imagine Mystic without your store on Main yeah, Street. Yeah, Mystic's,
2: Mystic's pretty weird right now. If you drive, my <laughs> yeah. other my other thought, I was driving around delivering a couple books for the staff who were in the store. And I just sort of felt like I was in this twilight zone. You know, mm. it's just sort of, there's very few cars. There, although yesterday when I was driving, I had to go to Charlestown and watch Hill and I was talking to someone on the phone on Bluetooth in my car and I decided that, you know, by the end of this people are going to have beautiful gardens and they're going to be really in shape because everybody was out walking.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The gardens are going to be off the chain this year. I mean, if if my neighborhood's any indication, (laughs) because I just feel like there's actually a funny video going around YouTube with a guy like, Taking a scissor and cutting every blade of grass in his yard, <laughs> you know, because it's like what else do we have to well, do? And know? I,
2: in one of my moments last week, I uh, I have chickens. I have bantam chickens, these sort of exotic-looking things, and I have one that's a Polish that has this thing on top of her head, and her name is Corella. She's the only one that has a name. Um, and I wanted some more because I only have ten. I you know I usually have a few more. So I went to my normal website, to McMurray, McMurray, and they were out of the Polish. So I found myself on another website, and I g- gathered up some bantams in the Polish, and I went to check out, and they were like, you need five more chicks. And so I was like, you need a few more chicks to check out. So I ended up ordering 30 chicks. Like, oh my gosh. jeez. Like, no, it's okay. And I was like, well, I'm not going anywhere. Right. So you know, when they come, They'll be fine. So anyway, it's pretty funny, I think, what people do. It's like yeah. it whatever we can do to get through it, it's right. with, you know yeah. and, and we're all in this together, you know. That's it's that's the really wild part about it. Yeah yeah,
0: yeah. And, and we will come out the other side and when we get to the bookstores again we will be ever oh, so grateful yes. <laughs> I can't like I feel like I can't wait for the first book event oh, that I get to go I to know do. it's going
1: to be like a religious experience walking yes. through the doors
2: <laughs> I really believe that you know yeah. I think I can just sort of feel that that people are going to be you know so much of what bookstores independent you know pro- provide is you know a sense of community gathering space, yeah. you know, dis- literary discovery, you know, this human interaction, and we are starving of that right yeah. now to some extent. We have all the social media, you know, the inter- things. thank God we have the internet. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is sort of a weird thing, you know, and you bring up author events, and we've had to cancel all of our author events in person, but we're trying, all the bookstores around the world are trying to do more of these virtual events. Right. Um, so, we have some of those. We have like kids' story time with the dogs on Instagram and on Facebook that you know, we're just trying, you know, but to pivot into that virtual world so quickly, it isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do. So, we're all trying. I mean, the authors are trying, the publishers are trying. One publisher last week about to my sales rep, and she was asking, I said, You just have to make it as simple as possible. Yeah. I said, You yeah. cannot ask us to use more headspace right now to figure this out on our end because we don't have the staff nor we don't have the time.
0: Right, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think people are coming more and more forgiving of the quality so. of things, Yes. And, you know, yeah. just like put anything up we don't care we're hungry (laughs) for
2: interaction and so you know we do have our event social media person still on staff and she's out there doing you know for the last thursday i did she we did a video at savoy talking about sort of easter and thanking everybody and then i'm holding on to this jelly cat which is a stuffed animal line chicken this fuzzy chicken thing i'm holding on to this thing and i have all the other jelly cats behind me and an author that I know, Armando Lucas Correa, who wrote The German Girl, sent us an email and says, I want to buy that chicken that Annie's holding.
0: <laughs> you guys can start becoming like the eBay of bookstores, you know, just like <laughs> holding up things. <laughs>
2: so we're, you know, that's what we're working, you know, we're yeah. just doing everything we can think of yeah. and, and with the energy and you know headspace that we have, yeah. and you know my staff are are amazing. I mean they are hanging in here. You know my bookkeeper is up in her office by herself filling out all the government, federal and state forms and for loans and the grant, whatever whatever else we can find. I was actually on the phone with our landlords yesterday in Mystic, and working you know working out a plan with them, which is which was great. And she tells me that the woman who started Spanx, you know the whatever you call those things, the elasticized girdle thing, whatever. She started, she's a woman, and she's putting up $5 million to help woman-owned businesses um, in the form of grants, because she, her story, I looked it up, her story was she started that with Mm $5,000, and she knows what it's like to do, so it's to empower women um, with their businesses. So everyone's sort of coming to help as as best they can. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, Annie, you've talked about being on other boards, and, and this question isn't necessarily about a, a board per se, but we're so dying to hear a little bit about what it was like to be a National Book Award judge.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I yes.
1: think like 100 years ago. I think it was
2: skinny. Well, it was actually fun, hard, you know, challenging. It wasn't the reading part for me because I read almost two hundred books a year. But you know, the books started coming and they kept coming. And even you know, my UPS guy is like, What are you doing with all these books? Because <laughs> I had them in my house so they wouldn't get lost at the bookstore. Right. So I finally had to set up a couple more bookshelves in the garage because I I need to see them. They can't just sit in a box. Mm-hmm. Um so that was sort of the first part when I realized that I was going to get like four or five hundred books to do that.
0: Wow. Not many
2: yeah, oh, no. and we oh, divided we did, Every committee does it differently, but our committee divided it up by the alphabet. So, someone, one person took A through SO, the next person took the other one, next person. And then you wrote, read those books with those authors' last names. And then we would have a call and we would, you know, pick out the books that we wanted other people to be reading that we thought were, you know, good contenders. And then we would talk about those books. someone might have already read it another time, but we would talk about it and It took us you know down to i guess in September, we came up with the top ten and then coming to the five, there were a couple that were that had really soared to the top early on in terms of the writing quality and just the quality of the book but it was the conversations were interesting And it was interesting for me as a bookseller, everyone else on the committee were authors or um, one was a reporter for BuzzFeed and I had to take off my bookstore hat. You know, I had mm. to just do it as a reader um, and not thinking about how am I going to sell this book. Right. But, you know, that did interfere in my thinking a little bit, but just because that's what the hat I, another hat, the hat I wear. But it was really about reading and the quality of the writing and the quality of the story, you know, and how it speaks to you. So it was interesting. It was, but then, you know, when I finished, I found in November, I couldn't read anything but these psychological thrillers. (laughs) (laughs) Brain candy. I couldn't read anything too complicated. I mean, they're good. I love reading those anyway. I love those dark psychological thrillers. But, But I just whipped through them. You know, I was just, I just needed to cleanse my brain, you know, from, all the different, re- and I was fiction. I was not non-fiction. So yeah. fi- I would never do non-fiction because I don't feel I'm at all qualified to do non-fiction. I just read much more fiction. Um, but I just had to read these, just these thrillers that j- I could just like re- re- restart my brain a little bit. But yeah. it's good and it's, you know, it's really good sort of intellectual discussion about these books. And I found it fascinating to talk to, uh, listening to some author's perspective on books. Um, just th- those are people who are writers themselves. And yeah. sort of examining a book and what are, what are its merits and and you know whatever else about it that was that was I learned a lot from that it was good.
0: Did you find that you all were in agreement on the winner or was it complicated uh, yeah. to get to that part?
2: We were pretty, that's where it was we were pretty much in agreement. Yeah, it cool. wasn't a lot of arguing about that. Yeah. I know some communities that that. Can argue about it but argue or Debate maybe is a better
0: word (laughs) I always have this impression in my head That it's like a jury room you know Like and, and there's You know people are campaigning for their favorite Book and it you know goes back and forth And back and forth for hours until someone Breaks or something you know
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it's on the phone, but <laughs> that, that can happen. That can happen. That can happen. But you know, you have to fight your own battles. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. You might get outnumbered to some, and you can still believe in it. Yeah, but sure. Yeah. You, you yeah. might have to acquiesce to the majority. Yeah.
1: On yeah. Some but yeah. yeah, the
2: winner was a majority. That was fine. Yeah, that was That's That was good. That's That's good.
0: good. How cool. What was yeah. the winner?
2: Jasmine Ward's.
0: Oh God! How was it Salvage was it- the Bones? Was it Salvage the Bones, or was that not oh, that? That's no. the first
2: one.
0: No, um, or
2: next one.
0: I read it too, and I loved it. Um,
2: um, I can it.
0: remember it was about the mother and the daughter, and
2: yes, and yeah. the person and the boyfriend.
0: Okay, okay I'll yeah. look it up. Emily's Sorry, the I'm, I'm No, that's fine. no, it's okay. Sorry to put you on the spot. You know what's hard is that all of her books are unbelievable. I know it wasn't The Men We Reaped because that was nonfiction.
2: Right. It was after that. Yeah, Sing yeah.
0: Unburied Sing.
2: Sing Unburied Sing. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: Fantastic book. That was just sort of gone right there. But <laughs> sorry, Jasmine. <okay>. <laughs> we got to it. Yes. It yeah. yeah. Well, speaking <laughs> of time, we've taken a lot of your time. We know yeah. you're very busy. We will put all of the information about bank and about your GoFundMe campaign and how to order online in all versions of show notes thank um, you
2: so much i mean sure. we're so grateful i know we'll be here you know at the end of this you know these uncertain times and booksellers are strong they're resilient and you know we're gonna fight our way out of here
1: absolutely yeah we're with you we got your back
2: oh, yes. <laughs> thank you so
1: much yeah. thank you
2: both so much and enjoy the rest of your sunday thanks
1: annie you too bye-bye. Bye, bye-bye we hope you enjoyed the interview with Annie. Annie Philbrick is a fantastic human being in general and a, a wonderful bookstore owner and we're so happy that she has these two great stores that we both enjoy so much. And coming up next, we have an interview with Shuli Kwood.
0: Shuli has been with us 3 times on the Book Cougars because in the life of the book Cougars, she's published three books.
1: Yay. That's amazing, Yay, isn't Shirley. it? Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, it's so
0: amazing. I'm so proud of her. Shulie's a good friend of mine. This is her first work of fiction. It's a book of short stories titled A Small Thing to Want and it publishes on May third. You can pre order it now. We'll put all of that information in the show notes. And we're so glad Shuli could join us to help celebrate our hundredth episode. Yeah, so please enjoy the interview with Shuli. Hi, everyone. We're so excited to have with us today author Shuli Kaywood. This is Shuli's third time on the Book Cougars, which is really exciting for us. She was on on episode twenty-two talking about her memoir, The Going and Goodbye, and then came back to visit us on episode sixty-four with the book launch of her book, 52 things I wish I could have told myself when I was 17, which is a lovely little book of wisdom, little bits of wisdom. I happen to have if you could see behind me, number 24 hanging on my mirror, which says, being kind to yourself is not the same thing as being selfish. Something I think we all could be thinking about right now, definitely a time to be kind to ourselves. And Julie's here today to talk to us about her upcoming book that's going to be published on May third. The title is A Small Thing to Want, which is a lovely book of short stories. Thank you so much, Julie, for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this. So the book is a is a set of stories that You know, it's really about human beings and their relationships with their friends, their lovers, their family, their neighbors, and more. Tell us how you came to write a book of short stories.
3: I began writing this book in 2014. I was actually in my MFA program studying creative nonfiction, which is what I had applied to be in the program for. And I was writing my memoir, and I actually got stuck. I got tired of writing within the confines of truth, which you have to be with memoir. And I really wanted to just have the freedom to make up stuff. And so I started writing fiction that summer. And I began loving it so much. I hadn't done fiction writing in many, many decades. And so I... Um, liked it so much that I decided I wanted to study it in my MFA program, and that meant that I had. To, you have to apply for my MFA program from Queens University. You have to apply to the genre that you're going to study. So I had to apply to be in the fiction program, and I was lucky; they allowed me in. Fiction and creative nonfiction, of course, have many many crossovers, because when you're writing creative nonfiction, you're using the storytelling techniques that fiction writers use. You're just within the confines of truth. So, I, there was a lot of crossover for me, but I got to study fiction and creative nonfiction
0: during my MFA program. That's great. Wow. I remember, I'm full disclosure, friends with Shuli. And I remember <laughs> when she was struggling to make that decision. And, you know, I loved this book so much. So, I think it paid off. Kudos well, for you. Thank for you. <laughs> being to, to change lanes midway, which isn't easy to do. Well, it
3: was a, really a labor of love. I loved writing this book. So, it was really fun.
1: So it's 12 short stories and I noticed mm-hmm. that some of them have been published in in different outlets individual as individual short stories. So how did you bring these 12 together? Did you did you have a process for how you selected the stories that you chose or you know how did you fit them together?
3: Well, I'm sort of a one-lane person in many ways. I tend to write about relationships. I really like to write about love, whether it's romantic love, parental love, friendship love. I really like exploring and writing about what attracts people to one another, who you accept into your life, who you let go of in your life. And so it's a theme that was really easy to bring together because it's what I write about. So there's, I had very few stories that wouldn't fit into this collection. When I initially sent it to the publisher, it had two other stories and it ended up being that I kept writing about a certain character. And so I ended up adding two more stories about that character. And so he took out two stories and put those two in, but that's how it, the theme is definitely, um, is what holds them together, which is about all sorts of different kinds of love.
1: So while you were selecting the stories and, and revising them, did you go back and revise stories that you thought were finished already to kind of have them fit a little bit better together or anything like that? I'm just kind of curious. I, and I have to say, I haven't read the stories yet. So I'm asking these questions, you know, not having read them.
3: Sure. Other than the stories that are linked... Their, um, it, I did not revise to make them fit together because they, with the theme that I generally write about, it was easy to have them together. I certainly did revise them. I kept thinking the collection was done, and I would send it out for a contest, and then I would think, no, it's not done. And so I kept revising and revising and revising, and until I really thought it was done, that's when I sent it out to the publisher that I went with, which is Press 53. I, they were top of mind when I was looking to publish
0: this. So I have a question. This is something I think Chris and I have have talked about before on the podcast. One of my goals this year is to read more short stories Mm -hmm. and to take, you know, I have I buy these short story collections and then I put them down and then I I kind of treat them like novels. And so I don't want to pick them up till I'm ready to read the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And this year I'm trying to be more flexible and just Mm -hmm. pick up a collection and read a story and put it down. Do you, when you were putting this toge- collection together, do you write it with the idea in mind that people are going to read it from the front page to the last page?
3: Yes, but you don't have to.
0: But yes, in terms of, I wanted the
3: order to be one where it interspersed kind of emotions so that you weren't, if it was a more challenging story in terms of being sad or uplifting, I, I wanted them to be. Um, not, you know, not in a row of the same kind of feeling. So I emotion wise, I tried to order them a certain way, but you certainly don't have to read them in that order. They're, the characters stand by themselves They're It's not a novel in stories, although even a novel in stories, you can read the stories individually and it doesn't have to be a certain order. I don't think. Oh no, I'm way too anal for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm like you, I read it in order, but I don't always read it. I might intersperse it with another book. So, um, a novel and stories or a short story collection in terms of how I read, but I do read it in the order that the author put, um, because I feel like there's a reason behind that. And I want to respect that.
0: Right. Great
1: point. So you, you talk about emotions, evoking emotions in your Mm -hmm. writing. This Mm -hmm. might be a question that's a little bit too in the weeds, but how do you do that as a writer?
3: I think you stick with not talking about emotion. I think you stick with talking about the character's thoughts, what they're going through, the setting. I think all that should evoke emotion without you saying, Chris and Emily were so sad that day. I think if you go to explaining
0: emotion, it just doesn't work. So it's about evoking it in
3: different ways with the writing.
0: I mean, I feel like the book really does that. And one of the most touching stories to me is, well, I'm not going to say which one it is, because that's too much of a spoiler. But there's a story where... There's, you know, a little bit of a love happening and people are attracted to each other. And it's not a first relationship for either of them. They have Mm -hmm. some age and wisdom Mm -hmm. in in there. And, you know, the woman chooses not to go towards the relationship. She chooses to walk away from it and um, towards someone who's a little bit more maybe safe and um, maybe less thrilling. <laughs> but mm-hmm. she's had some of those other experiences before. And I thought that was so touching. You know, there's a lot of wisdom in this book about relationships and what we learn from them.
3: Well, thank you. And I think I'm a person who really, that's just something I'm interested in. I'm that person who eavesdrops on couples having conversations. I watch body language is of people sitting in a restaurant where I can't even hear them. And I'm always guessing, is this their first date? Is this their hundredth date? Is this their breakup? You know, and I I like to watch people and and I like to figure out, I always have a backstory for these people that I watch too that is completely wrong, I'm sure, (laughs) but I always immediately create a backstory of why they're together. And couples especially fascinate me, but so do friends. Why do friends stick together when you see them and you think, well, one's treating the other badly, or they don't match in terms of friends. And of course our families of origin, we don't get to choose. And so why, you know, do we stick with our families? Do we break away from them? What are the reasons that we do that? All that stuff really fascinates me about just interpersonal choices
0: that we make. So another kind of um, question that I have just about the design of the book is, I love the titles you have for the stories. And I'm wondering if the titles find you or if that's something you really work hard at when you're when you're putting them on. And I, do you I, keep track of your stories through the titles as well, <laughs> I wonder?
3: I do keep track of the stories by the titles. I used to hate titling things. I don't know why. And then I realized that it was an opportunity for me to find a little kernel of, I often pick a word or a set of words that are set in the story. Sometimes it's completely different from any word that's appeared in the story or a set of words that's appeared in the story. But most of the time, I find a little phrase or a word that suddenly can take on a different meaning as the title. And so now I see titles as an opportunity to give more to the reader. It's like a, a window or an introduction that allow You know, if you write a poem about apples, it's not really interesting if your title is apples. It's more interesting if there's a word that you pick out that makes the reader enter the story or the poem differently because of that title and so I like those little twists now and I really enjoy making titles now and usually they come to me I'll be writing along and I'll say
0: oh okay that's the title right there
3: and it's been really fun now I used to like I say not like it at all and now I love it I love doing titles
0: well they definitely get your attention so I, I would I'd venture to say you've mastered it well done <laughs> I'm trying
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting Shirley um would you be able to or willing to talk a little bit more about your writing process? You know, I know a lot of writers have writing groups that they're a part of others shun those. So just kind of curious about your writing support and then your writing routines.
3: Sure. I am. I'm very lucky. I'm part of two groups. One's an in-person group of two writers who are local and we meet about every month or two and, you know, give each other feedback. One of my longest, um, Official writing buddies is um, my my friend Corinne. We have been uh, we used to work together. And it's funny because when we worked together, we barely knew each other. And somehow when I was leaving my job in which we worked together, we started talking about writing and then we both realized we write creatively. And so since then, we've started exchanging work monthly. And that's been now years that we've been doing that. And she gives me feedback. And then someone named Emily Fine also reads almost all of my work (laughs) and also gives me feedback. And I would say that those, that feedback is hugely helpful. I don't know that I could write in a vacuum because I miss things, definitely, definitely. And I want feedback on how, how the story is going, how it, how it sits with somebody. My writing process is that, obviously, so it depends on fiction or nonfiction or poetry. If it's nonfiction, obviously I know the ends of the story. Like when I was writing my memoir, I knew the ends to every single story. There was no surprise. It was my life. One of the things I love about fiction that is... If you, if you know me well, you know I'm a person who likes to control things, I like to know the ending of things, Emily knows that I will read a story, <laughs> a book, <laughs> and she hates this about me, but I will go to the back often, not always, but about 50% of the time I'll flip to the back, see what the end's going to be, and decide whether I want to spend the time reading that novel to get to that ending. And if I don't
0: crazy people, I know it makes me crazy. I put it down.
3: (laughs) So I don't, it's funny. And in all areas of my life, I like to know what's going to happen. I don't like surprises, but when I write fiction, one of the things I love about it is not knowing what's going to happen. I never know the end of the story. And that's, what's interesting to me. I would not be a writer who plots it all out. And that's great. I mean, half the writers out there do that and they do it very skillfully. That would not be me. It would bore me to tears. To know how how what every chapter is going to be and what the end is going to be so when i start writing a story i never know how long it's going to be i don't know what the characters are going to tell me what they're going what secrets they're going to have what i'll discover about them it's usually a story will start for me as some sort of situation usually between two people and I will just write it from there and discover who they are and what they want to tell me and what's going to happen. And to me, that's the funnest part about writing fiction is just the surprise. I've had characters tell me stuff that I just was shocked. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> what? You did what? And you love who? Or what did you do? And that's, that's the really fun part
0: of it for me. So different than um, nonfiction writing. It's really interesting. True. It's funny because I just finished a novel this morning that I will, by the time you're listening to this interview, the beginning of the podcast, I'll have talked about. But I suggested it to Shuli. And when I got to the very end and read it, I I actually had this thought in my mind. I wonder when Shuli reads the end if she'll decide she wants to read it or not. <laughs> <laughs> another friend that reads the end of books first it makes me absolutely insane because i love i don't even read the flap of a book i don't really, really? want to know much about book at all when i enter it yeah, yeah that's interesting <laughs> uh. <It's laughs> have you different. always
1: been like that Julie? As a, yeah. Even as a kid, wow, interesting. Oh, I
0: don't, I don't remember
3: how I read as a kid. I know as a like even in college, yeah, I would flip to the end. Now I, there is a story that I will talk about that I didn't read the ending, and thank goodness I didn't. It's probably my favorite short story. It's called Roman Fever by Edith Wharton, mm-hmm. and um, it's a story that it's a very quiet story. It's about two women. They have daughters, and they're in Italy, and they're talking about their past, and that's mostly what the story is. And then at the end there's a big surprise and twist that happens at the end that that I didn't see coming. And I realized within the last year that I have been trying to write that story in all my fiction, the surprise part at the end. And so you'll find that not in all my stories, but in some of my stories, I unconsciously have something kind of twist at the end where something's revealed or something happens that you didn't expect, and I think it's that influenced by that uh, that Roman Fever story. I keep looking down because Edith Wharton's book is right in front of me, and so I I am glad that I didn't read. I don't read the ends of short stories. They're they're easy to invest time in. It's novels. Right? I want to know if I'm going to invest the time in a novel that I'll read the ending often, not always. About fifty percent of the time, like I said.
0: Yeah, because actually, usually you start reading and then you're like, okay, I can kind of see where this book is going. Let me read the end and then I'll decide if I want to read true. it. That's right? true. Sometimes yeah. I don't.
3: Yeah, if, I, if I'm if i caught, you know, I'm into it at the beginning, then I don't read the end. But if I'm like, mm, I'm on the fence, let me see the ending,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, then I'll do it. I'll flip to the back and say, do I want to keep on? I mean, isn't life that, is short. It is,
0: indeed. <laughs> but as, as a thriller mystery reader, Chris, isn't that just, like, the most bizarre idea? Like, you wouldn't want to see what happens. To me, that's the part of it. Because what, I don't
3: fiction... But you have to remember, I don't usually read thrillers and mysteries. That's yeah. not the genres that I read. So that would make a difference, sure.
1: Yeah, well, sometimes, though, too, like, it's not the end of the book that... You know, I mean, there are there are mysteries where... The end happens two-thirds or the the solution comes two-thirds of the way through and then there's kind of the fallout of the story um and where the pieces land so the the few times when i've tried to read the end of a book and i couldn't tell you which books they were like it didn't make any sense to me mm-hmm. the ending because yeah. it was just kind of like sometimes characters were mentioned that weren't mentioned in the first couple of pages and but yeah as a mystery reader that's interesting. Sure. I might try that. I might try that with the next one that I read. Like, so do you read like the last chapter or the last page?
3: I'll go to where I'm finding out what's going to happen with the plot. Okay. So wherever that is, oh, it might not God. be the last page. I mean, page.
0: that's like a dagger <laughs> through my heart. <laughs> completely plot-driven reader. so to me it's like then what's the point like why would you ever go back and read the book and
3: i often i often do read the whole book yeah i mean that i'm still i'm like okay that ending is gonna work for me i want to invest the time so i'll read it that's
1: cool yeah i mean and i'm a rereader of books too, too so that that wouldn't totally destroy anything but i mean it is fun to discover a book for the first time you know like sure those books that you wish you could read again for the first time because they're just so yeah delicious yeah
3: oh yeah yeah and i'm a rereader too definitely
0: thanks so surely you know we could talk to you all day sadly we don't have all day (laughs) Um, but we do want to know what if we're allowed to ask you what you're working on next i have short stories
3: so i'm working on a short story collection they are linked right now i don't know If they'll eventually be linked. So I'm on my second story of the link short stories. It's the first story that I wrote was about, um, these seven, I guess they're college roommates. Most of the story that takes place with the first person is when she's about 40 years old, but it keeps kind of going back to these housemates she had. So there are seven of them, male and female. And now my second story is about a different housemate and I don't know that I'll continue on I'm just sort of seeing where that takes me but and then I have two other projects one is a one is about a writer going to a writers conference <laughs> and she's a character very unlike me And then another um, longer story that I have um, is a love story that may, I want to say it's sort of a romance, but it's not because it doesn't have a little neat ending. Um, I've written the whole thing. It's novel length, but I think it's more like women's fiction rather than, because there's a lot of stuff about family secrets. So it's not, to me, it's not really a romance. I think if I submitted it to a, a publisher of romance, they would want the scene at the end and the kiss and all that. And that's just not my style. I don't really like things to be cheesy or wrapped up in a bow. So I don't know how I don't know how I'll eventually
0: what I'll eventually do with it. And there's some other big news. Did you not want to talk about it? Thanks for asking. I have a poetry collection that I
3: submitted to the Mercer University Press contest that's called the Adrian Bond Award for Poetry and it won in for 2019. And so it'll be my first poetry collection it will be published next year, 2021, by Mercer University Press. And I'm excited about it. This is the, definitely the book that I've been working on the longest. Some of the poems are from my 20s. Um, most of the collection I wrote in the last decade, but some of them are very, very, there's a couple poems I wrote in college. So it's, a, it's one that was written over more decades than I want to admit.
1: <laughs> oh, congratulations, that's so exciting to hear. Thank yeah. you, I'm
0: excited. Super exciting. To remind people, the name of Shuli's newest book that we've been talking about is called A Small Thing to Want. It's going to be available on May 3rd, but you can pre-order it now. We'll put all of that information in the show notes. Is there anything people need to know about purchasing it, Shuli? Is it better to do it from your website? or? It's whatever's easiest for people. I always okay. say that. So I want people to have the easiest
3: way to get to it and whatever that is, is great. I'm just thrilled that somebody will want to read the book and pick it up. And that's always a gift for me. Excellent.
1: Well, thank you for writing because it's a gift for us. And we've, I've enjoyed everything I've read by you so far. And I can't wait to dive into this collection of short stories.
0: Well, thank you so much for both of you for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Thanks. You know, we forgot to mention too, that this is our hundredth episode celebratory episode. (laughs) And we're so thrilled to have an author on that we both love and that's you know old old hat for you now it's your third time so thank you so much for well, joining us
3: well you also had an author on who has listened to every single one of those episodes because i love the book cougars and i have been here since day one listening to you all and i love the podcast it's fabulous so thank, thank you. you all for all the time and energy you put into this podcast oh, thank, thank julie. you julie
1: we hope you enjoyed the interview with Julie. I do have to say that Emily, when she dropped the book off for me to read, because Emily read the book first, she was supposed to have left in her tabs that she put in. But you took them
0: out. I did. I put put gloves on. <laughs> and I took, whole, I took pictures of all my tabs. And then I pulled them off because I was afraid it was going to cause you stress when you oh, were no. reading. Oh,
1: I wanted to see them.
0: Remember we talked about...
1: Keeping them in there so that then we could maybe have points of conversation. Like, why did you tab
0: that? What were you thinking? Complete fail, as my kids would say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I look forward to reading it and then and talking with you about these stories.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you're all staying safe and staying home if you can.
1: And we want to thank all of you essential workers who are out there keeping our communities going. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.